My name is Mitch Belkin, and this is my brother, Daniel. We're both radiology residents in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we are here with Dr. Brian Carmody, aka the Sheriff of Sodium. Dr. Carmody is a pediatric nephrologist, an associate professor at Eastern Virginia Medical School, and one of the most prominent medical education thinkers and critics today. Brian, welcome back to the External Medicine Podcast. It's great to see you guys again. I hope uh, I hope residency's going well. Before we get started, do you have any financial disclosures? No, I don't. All right. Well, we have a bunch of topics we would like to talk to you about today. Uh, hopefully, we get to at least most of them. But one thing that you've written about recently, been tweeting about recently, is this IMG legislation in the state of Tennessee. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening and some of the background information, and then we can go into some of the details? Yeah, it was a it was a headline that caught my eye um, back in the spring um, when Tennessee, the Tennessee state legislature, passed a bill that would um, ease the requirement for international medical graduates to um, um, to have to do residency training in order to get a medical license and practice in that state. And actually, since um, Tennessee passed that law, Alabama actually passed a similar law, um, you know, over the summer. So what is the stated goal of um, both Alabama and Tennessee's legislature? What are, what is, what's like the actual problem that they're trying to resolve by having uh, international yeah. medical graduates who have some experience practicing abroad and are licensed abroad bypassing the residency um, uh, application system and actually completing our U.S. Res- based residency. Well, you know the the stated goal of all this stuff is to address physician shortages. You know because um, you know in Tennessee and Alabama, just like every other state, there's areas where um, there there are not really doctors for people to see, and so the the stated intent of this legislation is to ease the physician shortage uh, by you know, allowing a new stream of physicians to come in and, and potentially practice in those areas. Um, but like you guys probably know, if you follow me, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of a lot of the stuff that gets talked about when we talk about physician shortages. You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't know. I think most of the people who listen to this podcast are physicians, but many of them aren't. And so, uh, can you maybe talk about the like residency selection process and how, international medical graduates are treated relative to uh, U.S. Uh, MD and DO applicants? You know, there was a time in this country when um, there were way more residency positions than there were United States medical graduates. You know, if you go back to the original days of the residency match in the 1950s or even persisting into the 1960s, hospitals were hungry. They were eager to have resident physicians, and there simply were not enough U.S. medical graduates to, um, to fill all those spots. And so over time, a couple of things have happened to sort of um, make it easier for physicians who um, have, have received their medical school education abroad to come and practice in the United States. So, um, you know, through the 70s, for instance, physicians who went to medical schools in other countries, um, it became easier for them to get work visas and, and to train and to fill those positions. Um, at the same time, uh, some people uh, realized there was an opportunity sort of from a business standpoint to create medical schools to enroll U.S. citizens who had not gotten into U.S. medical schools. And so um, a number of medical schools got established in the Caribbean in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so now we have a system where we have more than, a, than enough applicants to fill the available residency positions. Um, there still are more residency positions than there are U.S. MD and DO graduates, but the remainder um, generally get filled by international medical graduates, which may be people who um, grew up and went to medical school in another country or sometimes even have extensive practice experience in that country. And they want to come to the United States, at least to train, if not to eventually live and work. Um, and then many other international medical graduates are U.S. citizens who, for different reasons, um, have chosen to go to medical school overseas. And sometimes they go to school in some country that they have some tie to or personal connection to, um, or they go to school in Europe or Israel. Um, but many of those, the bulk of those uh, U.S. medical graduates, international medical graduates are folks who go to school in the Caribbean. And so for the 
international medical school graduates, the one who are not US-based from birth, who decide to come and do a residency in the US, or I should say, who want to practice medicine in the US. You mentioned some previous pathways that were available. I know that historically it was possible for somebody who did a residency uh, who came to the US to do certain types of fellowship training could become um, a practitioner in the US without going through a full US residency process. I know of uh, at least in the diagnostic residency um, program at uh, radiology program at Maryland, I know of people who came to the US, this was 30 plus years ago, to go through that process. Um, now, however, the the main way, my understanding is people applying essentially to complete a residency slot as though they were a graduating US MD senior. Is that correct? So, yeah. So basically, I think the best way to think about this is to think about what the barriers to practice are for international medical graduates. So, um, you know, one barrier is a licensure requirement. So, so any state in the United States has a certain amount of postgraduate residency training um, in the United States that's required. So if you want to get a medical license, you can't just graduate from medical school and get a license. You have to have at least one year of, of postgraduate residency training um, in the United States and in, in every state. That's the way the system has been. And some states require three years. Um, so that's one barrier. A second barrier is that even if you can get a state license, you may not be able to get hospital privileges in that specialty. To use my specialty as an example, I'm a pediatric nephrologist, so I did three years of pediatric residency and then three years of pediatric nephrology fellowship. If you were a pediatric nephrologist from um, some other country, you could come and do a pediatric nephrology fellowship in the United States and get um, three years of you know residency experience in the United States. But that may not be enough to get you um, credentialed at a hospital because you may not be board eligible with the American Board of Pediatrics. And so you might have to come back and do some some amount of general pediatrics training in order to be board eligible and then board certified and get, uh, you know, credentialed by insurance agencies and hospitals. So basically what this legislation has done is it's removed that state licensure requirement so that now people who have, um, you know, have some practice experience, who have been in, in medical practice in another country for three out of the past five years, or folks who have completed a residency in another country, now they're eligible for licensure. So that's what Tennessee and Alabama have done that's, that's different than the way things used to be. And in place of that, what they'll do is they'll work um, at a hospital that trains res- residents, and they'll do that for two years. And then they'll be eligible for an unrestricted medical license in those states. But one problem with this legislation, and I think one thing that remains to be seen, is whether those other barriers are going to come down on account of this or not. You know, whether hospitals are going to relax their certification requirements or not, Um, whether insurers are going to, you know, pay for, um, you know, bills from these physicians or not. That's, I think, yet to be seen. During those years that they have to be at one of these academic medical centers, are they going to be overseen by another attending physician or are they basically acting attending physicians? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that that's not entirely certain yet either. Um, the um, Basically, the legislature, you know, passed the... Um, you know, pass the law saying, you know, let this be so, but um, they put it upon the state medical board to write the administrative code about exactly how this is going to be implemented and how it's going to work. Um, I think the intent, though, of having um, international medical graduates work at programs that have a residency is so that um, there will be some, you know, some supervision, I mean, a more supportive system. And on the one hand, um, you can see that through a lens that's uh, I mean, completely benevolent. I mean, that makes sense. If you've been practicing in another country, um, I mean, you, it would be a very steep learning curve to just come and start working in the United States one day. So it's easy to see that, that uh, such a policy through that lens alone. And I mean, I think that's, that's a, a true lens through which you can see it, but I think it's also easy to see it as a, um, uh, a benefit to the hospitals who now can, shore up some of their staffing needs with um, a workforce that I think, I think people will be very eager 
for these kinds of positions and they'll get many qualified applicants for positions that might have been challenging to fill otherwise. Where I, uh, I did my intern year, some of the program directors may screen out applicants on the basis of, say, what year they graduated from medical school and select a, a younger um, cohort of incoming potential residents. Um, where, where I did my internship, there was maybe the exact reverse process. It's created a, um, an opportunity for program directors who are seeking more experienced applicants. And like, for instance, one of my upper year senior residents, uh, who is a, a technically a PGY2, um, was previously a transplant urologist uh, and then had done a nephrology fellowship and then was completing his right. three years of residency. And it created kind of a very unusual circumstance where it was clear that he knew way, way more than the attending, some of the attending, many of the attending physicians overseeing him, particularly on topics related to the kidneys. It was just a weird... Um, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I it, back back in the day when I was in residency, we had a resident who was a year ahead of me who um, who had been in practice as a neonatologist. So, I mean, it was wonderful on a pediatric residency program to have your senior resident be someone who actually, you know, had, had run a NICU before, you know. Um, and, and you're right about program selection strategies, too. I mean, the, I think the dominant strategy for many programs is, like you said, they want fresh graduates. And and the sort of, I think, the the... the Maybe it's obvious, but maybe it's a little bit hidden why the logic of that is, is that um, it saves you some time and screening. I mean, the, the, the assumption you're making is that if someone hasn't matched in previous cycles and you're assuming someone who graduated five, three, you know, whatever, how many years ago that they haven't matched, which is an assumption, but um, you assume that if they didn't match, there's a reason for it, that they have some academic deficiency that uh, maybe they don't interview well, but whatever the reason is, you can try to figure it out yourself, or you can just trust the wisdom of the crowd and say, oh, well, you know, they didn't match before. So why would I want someone who didn't match before? And I'm going to limit my ARIS filter to just people who are recent graduates. And many programs choose that strategy, I think, in part, if, if not mainly for that reason. But you're right. There's another strategy that many programs employ, which is because they realize that there's there's a certain number of applicants like the one that you described and, you know, my own personal experience or some of the folks we have in our program who, um, who have exceptionally um, useful experiences, but you have to be willing to read more ARIS applications to find them. Yeah. And, and another thing I'm not sure that people outside of the medical field know about is that a lot of the IMGs are applying to 10 times, 20 times the number of programs that other people are applying, you know, regular, like US-based applicants are applying for. I mean, it's not uncommon to apply to 300 programs, 350 programs. Right. So maybe let's get into your skepticism about this actually addressing physician shortages. I mean, everyone keeps hearing about the physician shortages, and I think that that has... Um, that maybe you could argue that uh, there, there's... There's an anxiety within the medical profession about nurse practitioners and other people are um, doing more and more of the work of primary care and sometimes uh, hire uh, other subspecialties yeah. in medicine um, in order to fill that gap because we don't have enough physicians. So, so why isn't this uh, law going to solve all of our physician shortage problems? Well, right. That's a good question. So, um, you know, I started sort of thinking about physician shortages a little bit a couple of years ago. And whenever I hear discussion of physician shortages, I sort of, I, I mean, honest to God, I sort of play this little game with myself based on what the person's saying. If I click on their bio or if I listen to them talk longer or whatever, what is their stake in this? Um, and almost, and of course this is true for, you know, lots of issues, but most people who uh, who speak the most about physician shortages, they're not analysts. They're they're advocates for a particular policy solution based on a problem that they perceive. And um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it means that um, I think a lot of people's knowledge about what they think they know about physician shortages is maybe not maybe not true. The first thing I'd say is um, you know there's a lot of different things that might 
a lot of sort of individual problems that could be described from a certain viewpoint as being a result of a physician shortage. For instance, if I want to see a doctor and there's not that type of doctor in my hometown, I might say, well, there's a physician shortage. If I want to see my doctor because I'm sick and I call them and they say, well, our next appointment is in two months, I might perceive there's a physician shortage. If I'm a hospital who's trying to recruit someone for a particular specialty, and I don't really want to have to increase the price that I'm paying to get that specialist, I might perceive that there's a a physician shortage. But I would put it to you that almost none of those problems will necessarily be solved by simply producing more doctors and hoping that they're going to work in the places that you wanted to work and practice in the way that you want them to practice. So, I mean, just, just to sort of build on the, the stuff I said before, I mean, if we look at those problems and sort of analyze them, let's say I'm in a, um, I mean, I grew up in a small town. We didn't have many specialists. Um, but one reason that we don't have specialists is because it's not really a good business model. I mean, there's people who have rheumatologic disease or need certain surgical specialists, but there's not thousands and thousands of them, you know? And so you could train more vascular surgeons, but it may not ever be in anyone's economic practice best interest to go and practice in a place where you only have a day's worth of clinic a week, you know? And, and that's sort of, so you could train a lot more people and it wouldn't necessarily trickle down because you haven't addressed the incentives that keep physicians from practicing those places already. A better example is the one I gave second. I mean, like, um, you know, um, I, you know, I work um, with our pediatric residents. Many of them are going into general pediatrics, um, general pediatricians. Uh, if you know, it's pediatrics is not necessarily a, a very profitable area of medicine. If you want your practice to, um, to, to be profitable, you, you have to run kind of a tight ship. So however many patients that you're going to see that day, really, you want to fill your schedule. You want all the people that you filled it with to come. You could leave five spots open in case some sick kids need to be seen that day. And many practices still do. But what if you only have two sick kids that day? Well, now you have three spots that were left open and the lights are still on and your nurses are still there and, you know, electricity's you're paying for all that stuff and there's no real work being done. Or you might have 15 people and you've only got, you know, five spots. And so, you know, it's not an efficient model. And so you could train more doctors. uh, You could have more pediatricians, but those pediatricians will, will still face the same incentives that the existing pediatricians do, which is to fill your schedule to the brim. And anyone who's sick, you push them off to the urgent care or emergency department um, because that's a simply a more efficient business model. You would have to change the incentives for providers to want to see those sick patients. To you'd have to give them some incentive to want to get people in sooner. You know, um, it's also I think there's data to show this. If it's really easy to get an appointment at your doctor's office, people same day cancel more often. I mean, why wouldn't you? You know, at the same time, if you've been waiting three months to get in, I mean, even if the weather's bad or you don't feel like going or whatever you're kind of like, oh God, I mean, if I don't go, you know, I mean, you know, so unfortunately there's a perverse incentive to keep those waiting times somewhat longer. You know, if you're a hospital administrator, you know, and, and you want uh, a particular specialist to, to work at your place and you say, oh, you know, I can't, I can't, you know, we can't hire someone to do this. The first thing you ought to ask is, well, have you, have you tried raising the price that you're offering? <laughs> and, and almost never is the answer yes. The, 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 the perception of physician shortages from hospitals and medical groups is we can't find people to work here at the wages that we want to pay them. But of course, the way markets work is that if you want something bad enough, you should increase the price you're willing to pay for it. And so many of the places where there, there are physician shortages, I'm not sure that, that many, if any of them, would get better by simply training more doctors. I think you have to adjust the incentives that keep people from working in those places in the first place. I guess the first thing that comes to mind for me is one way that this these laws could change or help the physician shortages is by creating in an underclass of physicians who train in this sort of other way. And because there's 
They're not universal. They can't just get privileges at any hospital. The specific hospitals that do allow them to get privileges would have much more negotiating power. And so that would be a right. way that they could say, okay, well, if you if you did this law, then you're going to be paid at this rate, whereas you know, a regular physician would get this other rate. Right. No, I think that's it. I, I think it is it, it it has to be noted that this um, you know, these leg- these pieces of legislation passed with broad support from the hospitals and from insurers. And, you know, those are corporations who, um, you know, they have obligations to their stakeholders. They don't necessarily have, you know, and their shareholders rather, but they don't necessarily have any obligation to, you know, um, make life better for rural Tennesseans. You know, they perceive that this is going to improve their business. You know, the hospitals and the insurers perceive that this is going to, and so the question, it begs the question, well, how, how would this be beneficial to those groups? So in one of your YouTube videos, you actually pull out a map of, um, I believe it was Tennessee, and showing the areas that are shortage, quote unquote, shortage areas for not having sufficient numbers of healthcare professionals and those that have a glut of healthcare professionals. And interestingly, they can be like in adjacent areas. It could theoretically map on to just where people would like, where people who are physicians would like to live. Um but I guess if you don't think that this, this program as currently designed with the current incentives will actually fill need in areas where there are need, what are some alternative ways that we could improve physician shortages? Well, I think that there's actually, you know, when I started thinking about physician shortages, one thing that's sort of um, a little bit troubling about it is that there's not really any accepted definition for what a shortage of physicians is. And like I say, it sort of requires some, uh, you know, there's a context that's assumed when we talk about this, that, oh, there's a physician shortage. But, but like I said, it, I think it comes back to what is the problem that you perceive is, is evidence of a physician shortage? Is it that there's not a particular specialist in your area? You know, you have to drive a long way to your doctor. Well, that's a problem that you could solve a number of ways. And maybe if that's the problem you're trying to solve, the best answer you'd come up with is, well, we need thousands and thousands of more doctors so that, you know, to, to, to scrape by and earn, you know, a living, maybe they need to, you know, go to the places that aren't, you know, and maybe that would work, maybe, or maybe you could say, well, maybe we should give incentives for healthcare systems that have a lot of specialists to do more outreach. You know, maybe we should do that. Maybe we should, you know, um, change our reimbursement or, or provide some kind of um, incentive for big health systems with a lot of capacity to say, well, you know, you, you're going to go out and do this outreach clinic every so often for this specialty. You know, maybe that's a better solution to that problem, you know, or and you could go through that same logic with whatever sort of whatever face of the physician shortage you're seeing is is making more physicians the answer to that or not. And if, if, you, if the idea is that you want to get more people into practice in these shortage areas, I think, like I said, that you sort of would begin answering that problem by asking, why don't people serve there already? And as you said, if you look at a map of shortage areas in Tennessee, one curious thing about it is that, you know, in central Tennessee, you have, you know, the city of Nashville, which has every medical capability as almost anywhere in the United States. And yet there are, are groups of patients uh, very close to there who remain medically underserved. Now, why is that? It's not geography. It's not like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not primarily geography. I, my, my instinct is that it's probably that it's a patient population that lives there who, um, uh, you know, their, their insurance is the state Medicaid program or they're uninsured. And it simply has not been a priority for the big centers who live right next to the shortage areas to address that shortage because it, they're, they're not being reimbursed as, as they might be for doing other things. So maybe you would say, well, if you're going to practice in this area, well, we're going to increase your Medicaid reimbursement. Well, there's a lot more to talk about in this area, but we want to hit some other hot topics before the end of the interview. So the next one we wanted to talk to you about, it's something you've thought about and written about a lot over the years, resident unionization. 
And I think it's a, a little bit of a hot topic these days because they're in Boston, a number of uh, institutions or uh, re residency programs unionized, and then some other institutions in the area gave pay raises to prevent the other residents at their institutions from unionizing. I'm at an institution that currently uh, like gave a big pay raise in order to prevent unionization. So I guess from your perspective, you know, where where do you stand in this? What do you see as the best arguments in favor of resident unionization? And maybe if you could also give the arguments against resident unionization as the people who who uh, are against it see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first will be easier for me to to answer, I guess, because I mean my personal bias, I think, is that um, you know, resident unions can can do some good. I mean, so um the problem um you know, most of what I've talked about with unions is sort of a, an outspring of an argument I sometimes hear, which is that we need to get rid of the match. And um, so sometimes people argue that, um, well, you know, if we got rid of the match, then residents would have the same power that um, practicing physicians do. You know, if your employer is, is not good, well, you get a new one. You know, you leave, you vote with your feet. If you have a skill that's in demand, then you, you know, entertain multiple offers and, you know, employer one, uh, you know, is, is inspired to give you more money or more benefits because the employer two is, and, and some people want that to apply to residents as well, but that's just not the, the basic economics of that system. As I said, we've got way more people who would love to do residency in the United States than we have residency positions, you know? So the idea that there's that that residents at large are going to um, benefit from a matchless system, I just don't see it because you're going to have an incentive to underbid each other, and and some of the people who who argue that we need to blow up the match, they're people who've just gone through the match and they know how cutthroat it was, you know. And if you had if you had somebody that was like saying, oh, I'll work for you know this much less, uh, you know, the programs will of course choose them. You know, um, when you have an excess supply of potential residents, there's no incentive to, you know, to, to bargain or do any of those things. But if you think medical residents are hardly, uh, you know, the only employee group that finds themselves in that situation where they're individually replaceable. And that's really what the problem is, is that if you're looking to recruit interns, you know, you can easily find one who's. 99% of the one that you're looking at and like, um, without, without any trouble, you know, and, but many other industries are that way, you know, I mean, um, if you're a coal miner, I mean, you might be very good at mining coal, but probably it's not that hard to find someone else who could do what you're doing. And so I grew up in an area, you know, in the, in, in Southwestern Virginia, um, where a lot of miners were in the, in, in unions at that time. And it, and it provided nice benefits and protection for them because individually they're replaceable, but collectively they're not, you know, the mind doesn't work, you know? And, um, and so that's what I perceive for residents too, because, um, number one, because of the, you know, the, 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 the basic economics of supply and demand, individual residents are replaceable, you know, or at least I'll put it this way. Residents are very, very replaceable at the time that they're hired. And that's really the relevant time because the other piece of it is that, you know, because residency, I mean, it's work, but it's also an educational experience. Um, it's not easy to transfer programs. You know, it's not easy to, to change, to do something else. Um, you know, it, it creates logistical problems for you and for the program, you know? So um, what that means is that once you're in, you're stuck and the program has a lot of power over you. and I don't really see a way out of that other than collective action. So um, I think that the main reason that um, hospitals are opposed to resident unionization is economic. And I mean, you, you provided um, or sort of alluded to one of the best recent examples, which was, you know, at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where amidst this, um, you know, organization of residents and um, you know, plans to form a union, suddenly, <laughs> you know, suddenly the hospital came up with, you know, all these pay increases and nice benefits and things. And, um, you know, uh, it, 
it makes you wonder, well, why didn't, where, where did all that money come from? And, I, and of course, the truthful answer is that they perceive that whatever money they might be paying, if that prevented the formation of a union, would save them money in the long run. And, and I mean, it is, it is difficult for um, hospitals to, to work with unions, I mean, or any employer to work with unions. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's, there's rules that you got to follow. You got to have your attorney, your attorneys involved. You know, you're at risk if you, um, if you don't follow the rules of having, you know, complaints that are going to be expensive and difficult to deal with. So it adds a layer of difficulty for the employer that I think many employers would, would hope to avoid. But of course, the other issue is that in reality, unionized, uh, you know, truck drivers, they make more than truck drivers who aren't unionized. And actually you can, you could argue, and I think economists have that many of the benefits from people outside the unions are driven by the actions of the unions, you know? So, um, uh, um, so I'm not sure that there's really a legitimate argument other than economic for hospitals to resist resident unionization. And I think actually, if you were going to make a, um, an argument f- against unionization, I, I think the, the truest argument would be this. Residency is temporary, and eventually you're going to be an attending physician. And the hospitals, when the residents union bargains, they, they might say, oh, you know, well, guys, you know, that if the union has really got us over a barrel here, um, we're going to have to, you know, do without our, you know, uh, executive bonuses this year. That could happen. Or the people who at the top of the hospital may just say, well, you know, guys, the, the resident unions really got us over the barrel. We're going to have to, you know, cut our physician compensation and benefits by this much. And so it may be, and, and obviously the people who are making that decision have an incentive to protect their own compensation and positions and so on. But I mean, the money that, that is won by a, a union, um, it has to come from somewhere. I mean, it's not entirely a zero-sum game. I mean, you can have a hospital and a union that work together and they, they both benefit, but it's, it's largely a zero-sum game. And so I think if you were going to make an argument against resident unionization, it would be, hey, guys, you know, uh, take the long view, don't unionize, make less money for this three to five years, and you'll make slightly more money for the next 30. That would be, I think, the only truthful arguments you could make, which I haven't really heard anybody frame because it doesn't, you know, doesn't sound good. Play a little bit of devil's advocate here. So I could theoretically envision people coming up with, so take, I mean, maybe medicine is an example I'm not as familiar with, but you could imagine uh, problems with teachers unions, let's say, where you could have teachers who are performing below expected targets who are just allowed to kind of glide by because of the ability of the union to prevent an individual from being gotten rid of. So another question that I would wonder about too is the power of the union comes from the threat of a strike, right? Like the the, the power of the union is in large part from the ability to say, um, we're not going to work. My question as devil's advocate here would be, what would a resident strike look like for patients? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's. I think you, you hit on something that's true. I mean, it is problematic because that's the primary tool that, um, I mean, it's the nuclear option, but it's the primary tool or at least the threat of it that, that you know, has made many unions successful. And a resident unions, you know, a strike. I mean, I think it has, I think it has actually occurred. I mean, I believe it has, um, um, but I don't have those details in my fingertip, but I have a sort of a vague memory that in the 1980s in New York, there were, there was a resident union uh, that went on strike. Um, but you have to fact check me on that. I think uh, that's right. I think also there, there's one in the UK and some of them actually just, they work, but they don't document any of the uh like they don't do the documentation for billing and then i believe the one in new york and we'll have to put this in the show notes if it's wrong but i believe like mortality overall like went down during the strike um during it something 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 yeah. like that that was like that's uh, people yeah anti-medicine people uh, were excited yeah. about that but but I, but I would say there are still benefits of unionization that that even without striking i mean because um you have expert negotiators, you know, who are acting on your behalf with the union, you know, when 
when you when you are part of a union, um, you know, you're not negotiating your individual contract. You know, people are doing that on your behalf, and the people who are doing that on your behalf, they know what they're doing, and um, they know what other residents get. And there's a high information cost, and there's rapid turnover of res- with residents, such that without a union, I mean, you could do all those things. I mean, you could as a resident, um, you know, collect data and advocate and whatever, but the people negotiating with you, they sort of realize, you know, you're going to be out of there soon. And, you know, just like anything in residency programs, the rapid turnover and the fact that residents are so busy, um, it makes it hard to sustain a lot of things outside the program, you know? So um, also when you're part of a union, like I said, a whole different set of, you know, laws and regulations apply, you know, to the negotiations that occur. And, um, and like I said, that's one reason I think that employers don't want to be involved in that if they can help it is because all that's cumbersome and often, um, you know, litigious. Yeah. I think that the, in the, uh, position that I put forward, one of the, the obvious differences between a, a resident and say a, a teacher working for a teacher's union or a teacher working at a school and being part of a teacher's union is that the teacher ultimately has the ability to leave and take a position elsewhere. The resident is in this unusual position where there's really no, if you do not complete your residency program, you will not be able to practice medicine in the way that you foresee. So it's almost a, um, the, the incentive structure is somewhat different. Like we're bound yeah. to the institution in a way that other um, employers may not be, other employees may not be. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and yeah, I, I was going to comment on the teacher's example also, because I mean, it is, that is a concern that, um, you know, incompetent residents might be promoted or moved on because, you know, part of being in a union gives you some protections about making sure that you've had due process followed. But I think that, um, I mean, in reality, that should be the case anyhow. And in reality, it's difficult to dismiss a resident even without a union. Um, but the unions, I think they have an incentive um, to when people are not good. I mean, they, they should ensure that all the appropriate procedures are followed, you know, that the person has documentation of their deficiencies and a period of remediation and, you know, a chance to appeal and so on. They should insist that they get their due process, but the, the union really doesn't have an incentive to allow incompetent people to, you know, pass through because of the union. I mean, that really sort of, that, that does threaten the union. And I think that their leadership kind of realizes that and, um, you know, they'll, they, they will fight to a certain point when there's residents that, you know, are being dismissed, but, but the fighting is, is intended to ensure that the policies are being followed, you know? Just to follow up on what I said before, I found some, some, uh, some literature. It looks like there were, uh, five strikes, uh, from the articles on PubMed between 1976 and 2003, the strikes, the doctor strikes lasted between nine days and 17 weeks and all reported that mortality either stayed the same or decreased during, or in some cases after the strike, none found that mortality increased during the weeks of the strikes compared to other time periods. I'm not sure. I think that they offer emergency care during those times that they stopped doing elective things. Um, Mm. But I'm not sure all the details. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to hypothesize, you know, what, what differences in, you know, patients might've been in the hospital, you know, at the time of resident strikes or how the hospital's practice model might've changed, you know? So there was one court case that is, I guess, related tangentially to this that you were tweeting about. I don't know if we're still supposed to call it tweeting or not, but we'll still call it tweeting. (laughs) Um, So there was this recent court case where, uh, I think it was like in 2019, but it just came up. This is Weissman versus Barnes Jewish Hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about this this case and and, and your understanding of what happened here? Yeah, well, you know, it is is extensive. And um, I mean, the the gist of it is that there was a resident who um, was recruited to um, an anesthesiology residency program. And it was sort of unusual. I mean, the the resident had a lot of research um, expertise and experience and, um, and was recruited sort of on those grounds. And 
you know, there were discussions of having, you know, a, a, a lab and all this stuff. And um, things turned south. His clinical evaluations were not good. And um, the program started working to try to get him out. And, um, you know, it's not clear that all that was really sort of above the board. And, um, you know, of course, there's two sides to every story. But the bottom line is the resident was terminated. And, um, you know, all the uh, promises that were made didn't materialize. And, um, you know, his lab and all that stuff disappeared. And I mean, it was, it was a mess. Um, so uh, it ended up in litigation. And the, the part that was striking to me was, um, well, first of all, I guess it's worth comment that, I mean, it took years, it took years to get to the point where there was sort of a final judgment. And this is not even to trial. It was, there was so many motions and so much, you know, going on, the thing was finally dismissed, you know, um, but it took years. And as a side note, I've got to say, like that goes to show, you know, the failings of the legal system as it relates to resident issues. You know, sometimes I, every now, I've actually been thinking about making a video because I've gotten several questions lately um, from people who have gotten in trouble with their residency program and they, they are looking for advice. And my advice generally is, you know, your policies at your institution, that is your main protection. You know, you, you, it's tempting to think, oh, I'm going to sue their butt off, but in reality, it won't work. It, I mean, I'm telling you, it's, it's almost guaranteed not to work because um, there's no money in it for the attorneys in most cases. I mean, you can sue for a, a year of lost physician wages, but that's not really going to justify an attorney's involvement, you know, to get you back a few hundred thousand dollars, you know. Um, you really have to have some big damages to make it worth their while to take the case on contingency. You know, I mean, malpractice attorneys will take a case on the hope that it pays off a big settlement. And basically the attorney is acting like an, uh, you know, like an investor, you know, they're investing their time and resources um, with the hope of a piece of a payout. But if you're involved in the civil litigation, you've got attorneys on one side who are being paid by a deep pocketed organization and you're going to be paying out of pocket. You know, the, the Wiseman lawsuit worked because in part, because Dr. Wiseman is also an attorney. Um, but anyhow, I, I kind of digress. The, the part that was jarring to me was that, um, um, you know, the hospital and the university objected to everything. They objected to every single thing. Among them was the fact that Wiseman didn't even have a contract. And so Wiseman held up that they breached their contract because he'd signed this thing that he got after match day that goes on for 17 pages saying what he's going to make and, you know, all the different policies that he's going to be uh, held to and, you know, all the standards and so on. And so he alleged that they breached their contract and, um, and the hospital's like, no, that's not a contract and, um, and had a whole legal brief about it. And to me, that was just sort of, um, you know, aside from the merits of the case to, to sort of allege that you did, that all the people who were there working for you, you know, all the, I mean, this is one of the biggest GME sponsors in the hospital in the, in the country. We're talking about Barnes Jewish hospital in St. Louis, one of the biggest GME sponsors. So all the hundreds or thousands of trainees that are there every day, you know, working overnight, shuffling around, you know, putting in orders, taking care of the patients. They're actually doing that under some mistaken impression that they're contractually obligated to do so. And in reality, they aren't. They're not under contract. I guess they could just do as they please. You know, you can, they can't be held to it. I mean, for them to sort of assert that, and, and of course, it was a technical objection based on Missouri law. Missouri law says that a contract has to have this, that, and the other thing, and that document didn't completely apply in their opinion. But um, to me, that's just shameful. I mean, um, and obviously, I know that, um, you know, if you're sued, you, you, you probably don't want to waste any tricks, but I still feel like as a matter of principle, you ought not make arguments that are just sort of like that. I mean, that, that, you know, I, I would have a hard time if I were, uh, you know, whoever was dealing with the attorneys at the hospital and the attorney's like, well, actually, you know, I, I think we can make this argument. I'd be like, man, I really don't want you to have to go there. You know, <laughs> that's just, doesn't seem like an honest argument to me to say that in fact, None of our residents have a contract, nor have they ever had a contract. I'm not going to, you know, let's let's attack this in some other way. Very, very strange to 
to have that be part. I can understand like from a, like a legal standpoint that you'll just attach yourself to anything that you think will help you win the court case, but to kind of allege that like residents are not in any meaningful legal contract (laughs) at the hospitals in which they work. It's just very strange. It, it almost in, it reminds me of the, uh, this strange thing where, you know, as trainees, we, um, as residents, at least in the state of Maryland, we are not entitled to uh, some things that regular employees are. Like, for instance, like we can have a 401k, but since we're not employees of the hospitals, they won't match us. They'll match everyone yeah. else. They'll match the janitor. They'll match all the other important people in the hospital. But no, 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 no. We're we're still in training here, so we're a right. little different. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we we wanted to touch on a video that you made about the OBGYN ERAS divorce. Um, this is the, uh, uh, the AAMC's electronic residency application system. So core, like a big revenue gatherer for the AAMC. I believe you said something like in 2022, $120 million worth yeah. of income. And now OB-GYN has decided they're going to set up a separate separate process. What, what's your understanding of the kind of rationale for this and how this may affect ERAS in the future more broadly? Yeah, I think it's going to be a good thing as far as um, ERAS goes. I think um, either one of two things is going to happen. I think either ERAS is going to um, improve in the face of competition, that they're going to perceive a threat and they're going to be more responsive to applicants and programs and they're going to make their software better and they're, you know, they're going to benefit from competition or I think they'll fold and, you know, there'll be a different product that people use. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I think it's a good thing um, for applicants and programs, really sort of whichever way it goes, you know? Um, and I think that, um, kind of like we were talking about with, you know, with, with unionization and non-unionization, when, when one, you know, group does something bold, often it benefits everybody. And I think that this benefits anybody who interfaces with the AMC, because now there's a legitimate acted upon threat that, that specialties will vote with their feet. Cause I mean, there ain't no law that says you have to use ERAS, you know, it's just what everybody sort of does by default. And, um, so I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's occurring to me now that all of the topics that we're talking about today are all sort of on the intersection of of medicine and economics and monopoly power. It it, it also occurs to me occurred to me while I was uh, while we were preparing for this interview that in a way the OBGYN uh, going and forming their own separate ERAS and the Tennessee and now Alabama laws where these IMGs who are spending Lord knows how much on their 300, 400 applications. Now, if they can go through this separate way, I, I don't know if it's through ERAS. I assume it won't be through ERAS um, to have their own way of getting into uh, the, the the system within Tennessee or Alabama. But basically, where they're just slowly eating away at the uh, the uh, incredible profits that the AAMC manages to rake in through uh, through ERAS. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, you might have seen this on x or twitter but i mean i was trying to highlight i think eras is under serious threat right now um i mean OBGYN is still in for now but i think the bigger problem is um you know the proliferation of of high preference signaling high number preference signaling which you guys have probably you know followed a little bit although i guess it's sort of you know didn't affect you as much um you know several specialties starting with OBGYN and orthopedics um asked the AMC to allow preference signaling through ERAS using a high number of preference signals. And I know that those specialties knew exactly what they were doing when they did it. When a specialty uses a high number of signals, it functions as a soft application cap. Because, you know, for instance, last year, orthopedics allowed each applicant to have 30 preference signals. Well, if you get an application from some applicant who doesn't send a signal to you, I mean, you can review it and you can invite them for an interview, but you already know that you're at best their 31st favorite program. And is that really worth your time and your faculty's time as a program to do it? Probably not, you know? And so um, programs 
they get so many applications that are signaled that an easy first step to reviewing applications is simply to look at those and find enough applicants to interview. And so last year in orthopedics, if you did not signal a program, your odds of you know getting an interview were about up 1%. And even that 1%, I think, is misleading because I think many of those applicants, in truth, were an applicant who had done an away rotation or that was their home institution. And the program director was like, don't worry about signaling us. We're going to interview you anyhow. I, I don't think that very many of that 1% were even people that were like, well, we've got all these signal applications, but let's see what else is going on in this pile over here. You know, so what that means is, you know, a couple of years ago, orthopedic surgery applicants were applying to, you know, 90, 100 programs apiece. And I think many people will still apply to a lot of programs, but as each year goes by, I think orthopedic surgery applicants are going to see that you're really kind of wasting your money. You know, I mean, it, it applying to places that you haven't signaled, unless you have some credible reason to believe that they're going to give you a, an interview without signaling them, or unless you think that for some reason that program is going to be undersubscribed and they're just not going to get enough signals to, you know, to look through. So, you know, starting with orthopedic surgery and OBGYN, they went with big signaling in the past cycle. And now a lot of specialties are doing it. Urology is doing it. Neurosurgery is doing it. Um, you know, for you all, diagnostic and interventional radiology together, I think you get, I think it's 12, you get 12 signals. So not as high, but that still is going to have the same effect on decreasing the number of applications. And as I said, that, that effect is going to magnify in each cycle as applicants get more comfortable with the real life data that, that are going to show that, you know, um, your, your odds of getting a, an interview at a non-signaled program in these specialties that use a high signal number, it's not good. So I think that puts them under stress, um, or at least under threat. And, um, and I think you can see that in some of their policy decisions. So I guess let's jump to a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, what is one medical truth or maybe economic truth or, uh, medico economic truth that very few of your colleagues agree with you on? I think one that I've been quiet about um, that I think is absolutely true. I mean, I've talked about it some, but I I don't put my neck out on this one on Twitter because people don't like to hear it. But, um, you know, recently there's been another, um, you know, upheaval of anger against the American Board of Internal Medicine. And of course, there's smoldering anger about the American Board of Pediatrics and the American Board of Radiology and so on, in particular related to their maintenance of certification programs. And um, I think it is a myth that there is really anything realistic that can be done to end those programs. I think that simply is, it will not occur. Um, now, I mean, there's one lawsuit that remains pending that could, um, you know, that, that could expose these organizations to an antitrust threat and that would shut it down. But, you know, there was previously, um, you know, two, a lawsuit against ABIM and, a, and ABR and that failed, you know, so I'm, I'm not optimistic about it. I do not think that there is a, a way to end MOC, and that's unpopular, but uh, these organizations, they exist because they can, and they simply will not choose to not exist. Is there some, um, like, uh, like one of the things that we've been talking about today that you feel like this, you feel like this actually might be a good solution to this problem? Uh, if it just need, if you just had like, a you know, few million dollars you could you could fund a small scale version of it well i'll tell you this is sort of getting off the topic maybe a little bit but um i'll tell you a policy i wish i could impose um because i mean i guess if there's been a theme in our discussion it is that you know people do things for a reason um and the incentives that inspire those choices um you know that's the lever that we have to you know to make people make different choices so um I wish that we would fund graduate medical education in a more sensible way. And we spend a buttload of money um, to, to support graduate medical education in this country. Most of it comes through CMS, you know, through, through Medicare. Um, but the way that that money is allocated is completely nonsensical. I mean, it is completely nonsensical. Um, it's, it's the end result of a lot of different political compromises over time that, um, you know, sort of grandfathered in um, certain residency programs and certain payment schemes. Um, 
and it makes no sense. And if you step back and you think, you know, from a, from a policy standpoint, if you say we're going to spend X billion dollars supporting graduate medical education, would you not want to have some social return on that investment? I mean, would you not want then to have the, the power to sort of direct workforce creation in the areas that you want? And, uh, and support, you know, people who are going to serve things that you feel are in the public's best interests. I mean, given that we're taking this money that could have been, uh, you know, whatever, funding schools or building roads or, or something that might have benefited every person. Uh, and instead, we're going to just sort of ship it off to, um, you know, urban hospitals in the Northeast to, um, you know, pay residency programs that maybe that's not the best use of that resources. So what I wish we would do is take all that money. And obviously there's no political wherewithal to do this. And it would harm a lot of the people who benefit handsomely in this system right now. But I would take that money and I would come up with sort of, I guess for lack of a better word, sort of a voucher system where um, instead of the Medicare sending a check to your hospital for training you, I would give a trainee a voucher that their hospital, they could then give it to their hospital that trains them and the hospital could redeem it for a certain amount of CMS cash. Um, but in doing that, you know, and we could, and we wouldn't have to spend any more money. We could take all the money we're spending now, but in doing that now, all of a sudden you have a mechanism through which you can say, well, you know, somebody, if you're a resident or you want to train and and you're going to go and work in one of these underserved areas, well, how about I give you one of these vouchers? You know, you apply and you, you know, you want to do that. You get a voucher. That's going to make you much more attractive to residency programs. You know, I mean, you'll, people would love to have that, you know, um, money from CMS, of course, you know, and, and you might be able to get a societal return on investment on that. Or, um, if you felt that, gosh, you know, we're training enough people in this specialty, but not enough in this. I mean, we, we need more radiologists for sake of example. Well, we could say, well, this year we're going to give more vouchers to people doing radiology, you know, um, because unfortunately right now, a lot of things go into the decision about whether a hospital may want to have a residency program or not, but whether there's a future societal need for the people that they produce, that they're training is really not a part of that calculus at all. So it would also give residents more power, um, you know, because they could vote with their feet. If they did transfer, you're going to lose that money. You know, there'd be a, not just the, the indirect hit of losing a resident, but you'd also lose their CMS funding stream. You know, if you want to mistreat people or harass people or abuse your trainees, you know, so I, I, to me, it would be a more sensible, more flexible system that um, could increase the return on investment that we're all, you know, contributing to through our taxes um, and, and not even cost any more money. But of course, it would, it would harm the people and entities that benefit in the current system. Very interesting idea. All right, last question. What is the most underrated article in the medical literature? Or it could be you read all sorts of stuff in law and economics, but what's one thing that you would think more doctors should read? You know, one of my favorite articles that I love to teach about, and this may not be interesting to, to you guys, but um there was um there was an article in the 1970s um called Acute Renal Success. And, um, oh man, I love that article because, you know, uh, when, you know, when I teach renal physiology to our second year medical students, um, you know, we talk about the function of the glomerulus and the function of the tubule. And sometimes every now and then I get a, a, a smart medical student that asks me, you know, why is it in acute tubular necrosis? I mean, if it's the tubule that's damaged, why is it that the patients don't have urine output? I mean, that makes sense if the glomerulus is damaged, but why, if you're still filtering, um, why, why don't patients continue to have urine output? And, and of course that was a question that had, that, that had troubled some other nephrologists in the past. And, um, um, if there's a beautiful, I mean, just like everything that the kidney does, I mean, everything that the kidney does is to keep you alive. If you think you're smarter than it I and mean, you get, you better think twice because, you know, it, it is what permits life on dry land. And so, um, yeah, in that time, we didn't talk about acute kidney injury. We talked about acute renal failure. So the article was called Acute Renal Success, you know, the unexpected logic of oliguria. And the idea was that somewhere, you know, eons ago, one of our genetic ancestors, um, you know, developed this physiology where you had tubuloglomerular feedback, where, where the tubule t- 
talked to the glomerulus and told it to shut down so that you didn't pee yourself to death, you know? So somewhere, I mean, somebody's, uh, I don't know, great, 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 great grandfather got, I don't know, bitten by the saber toothed tiger and, and, uh, you know, had hemorrhagic shock and they had ATN and they laid in their cave and they shut down their glomerulus and they conserved their fluids and somehow days later they were able to stagger up and, you know, their AKI resolved and they went on to pass on their genetics and physiology to the rest of us, you know? And so it's, um, I think it's a beautiful article that, that highlights a, sort of a broader principle that is almost everything. I mean, for our kidneys and other things too, that initially seems paradoxical about, gosh, why do our bodies go wrong in that way? Why do they not make this decision, which obviously would be so much better for, you know, this disease state there's a reason for it. You know, it's been evolutionarily endowed to us. Uh, and when you understand that reason, I mean, it, it kind of leaves you in awe of the human body. Um, but I think also gives you insight into, you know, how to fix it when you're in that position. Before we close, I don't know if you know this, our, um, our grandfather was actually a pediatric nephrologist. In, uh, <laughs> I think you told me that. Yeah. yeah you're reminding me. Yeah. Yeah. So we love the kidneys. Actually, I don't know if Daniel loves the kidneys. I've always loved the kidneys. I love the kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Brian, thank you so much once again for joining us on the External Medicine Podcast. We're going to link to your YouTube channel and your Twitter um, and your website, of course, in the show notes. But um, always, always a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it was a pleasure to chat. Wishing you guys the best. educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not endorse any healthcare providers or treatments. Our views do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. If you'd like to support us, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends.